Welcome to the Xterra Podcast. I'm Tom Patton. The Xterra mission is to explore and discuss the business of space and its effect on the national and global economy, as well as life on Earth. How does what happens in space affect your life every day? That's what we're exploring on the Xterra website, as well as on this podcast. My guest is Josh Carlson, author of the new book, Space Power Ascendant, Space Development Theory and a New Space Strategy. Josh, welcome to the podcast. Hello, Tom. Very happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Very happy to have you, Josh. Tell us, first of all, what is Space Power Ascendant about? So Space Power Ascendant draws together two thoughts and and meshes them together in a book that uh, addresses the current time that we're in. So the first part of the book addresses theory and how we look at space. Um, In particular, it puts forward a fairly simple proposition called space development theory, which says that space, like all domains, have four phases of development that they go through, um, which the whole spectrum of dime is, is relevant to all of these at all times. And so you go from exploration, which is going somewhere, finding things out and coming back, expansion, going somewhere and permanently placing either facilities or forces or settlements or whatever that is there um, in expansion. And exploitation, those settlements, those permanent placements now become a net positive on your economy. And so it is naturally reinforcing in your economic growth and continued competition with outside entities. Uh, Russia would be a great example that's very relevant for the time being. And um, exclusion is the ability to uh, bend the enemy to your will. Obviously, we don't live in a perfect world. And so if you have this very economically viable um, area or these very valuable resources, for instance, oh, I don't know, natural gas or any of these multiple things that Ukraine has, uh, or in the pipelines that go to Europe and all these other sorts of things. Exclusion is the ability to uh, control those and prevent the enemy from get, get, gaining control of them. And so this is the final phase. This is conditional. This can occur at any point in the rest of the development. That space development theory in an incredibly broad brushed uh, nutshell. And then I took that and then I applied that to our competition with with China in space, which I consider to be our primary strategic competitor. Um, Obviously, Russia is the topic of the day right now. And I I see them, they're much more of a disruptive partner. They are great at preventing us from being able to exercise control, but they don't have the, the same scope and capabilities that China does. And China, I believe, is a much more um, revisionist uh, competitor. They have a plan and they intend to win. Um, Russia basically intends not to lose, if I can say it that way, uh, in, in simplicity. But I apply space development theory and what China's plans and what the U.S.'s plans are for the next 20 years in space and compare that, compare them side by side and find out that if we don't change stuff, the United States is not going to win this. Give us a little bit about your background, Josh. Um, so everything I say here is in my own personal capacity. No, no statement I make here should be implied to, uh, uh, to, to carry any weight with the Air Force, the Army, or the Space Force. 
Um, but in my background, I do have some, I, I've worked for the Air Force, I work for the uh, Department of the Air Force, mm -hmm. and uh, I, I spent a lot of time in 2019-2020 uh, going to school and spending uh, a lot of time studying these things in in particular, uh, a lot of spent of basically a full year um, at uh, Air Command and Staff College studying space and uh, the theory behind it, the resources present, all of that, and then had a chance to talk to some awesome uh, talk to some awesome uh, people there that that are that specialize in this sort of thing as well, and so that's the most relevant thing I've I've done. Um, space acquisitions. I've done, I'm right now working for a, uh, a smaller office in San Antonio, Texas, the Air Force called Level Up. Um, they're, uh, they're, um, they build um, cyber capabilities, and that, which is really cool. It's something that the DOD is really trying to adopt, is being able to build our own stuff and not just uh, rely on outside entities to do that, contractors in particular. So your book is essentially about the rivalry between the U.S. and China for space dominance. What's the difference in our in the two countries' approaches towards space, and what should the U.S. be doing? So, in my estimation, there is a difference in vision, which determines a difference in strategy, which determines a difference in approach. And so, at every, in my opinion, at basically every level, by and large, there is a difference between us and China. So the vision. So um, let's start with that first. I think vision is incredibly important. What do we? How does a nation see itself, the world around it, and its place in that world? And um, I would argue that the, the 20th century was was um, an amazing time for American vision. We had had manifest destiny, we were going to go from sea to shining sea, and, um, and we did. And then we became the bastion of freedom and for two world wars. It was the United States uh, economy and, and industrial capacity, which largely tipped the scales in both of those conflicts. And then it was the Cold War. Now we had a new, uh, an evil empire, as Reagan says. And now that was our job. But then at 1991, the Cold War ended and we didn't really know what we needed to do. And unfortunately, our vision, in my opinion, didn't extend beyond simply trying to maintain what we had. And I think that has largely continued um, up until basically the current point. I, I hope to help change that. But I think that our, our current national vision is fairly meandering on space. It, it's, it's fairly similar. We don't really know what we want to do with space. We just kind of know we want to do space stuff, maybe space exploration, we keep saying. Um, but that's not really that's not really a vision. Neither is that a solid, that's not the basis for a solid strategy. China is completely different. China, instead, the United States is, is arguably the world's, well, it is the world's hegemon. We are the, the, the preeminent power. Um, and have been for about a century, probably. And we basically, in our history, um, we've never really, at least in in, um, in living history, we have never lost a war in the sense that we have we have suffered military defeat and we have had harsh uh, penalties imposed on us by an outside force. We've never really felt the the impacts at home domestically. We've sent soldiers overseas, the families, that we've, we've lost soldiers, those families at home have suffered, but our cities haven't been bombed. We, we haven't had an invading army take over California, for instance. 
Right. Um, Ch China has, and once again, arguably not within living history, but up until 1949, when the CCP was founded, um, before that, they were fighting in uh, civil wars. The Japanese invaded them 1930s. Before that, the colonial powers and um, particularly Britain with the uh, opium wars uh, overthrew from about 1840 to about 1949. They call that the century of humiliation. China knows what it is to suffer and to lose and to, to have that for 100 years. And so um, one of their museums from some of the, someone that's visited China, one of their museums has a, a replica of the, some of their ships. There was, they had a treasure fleet. Um, so everyone knows Columbus, right? Mm -hmm. With 19, 1492. Um, a lot of people don't know that Admiral Zhang in China had a treasure fleet that was made, making it all the way over to Africa as early as the, or as late as the 1420s. And I mean, by 1492, they very well could have potentially looked at circumnavigating, um, at least getting over to Europe, if not to the Americas themselves. And, but they didn't, they turned inward. They didn't have a vision for what that looked like to go and expand. They, the, the nobility didn't like the disruptive influence that sea power and the far trading expeditions were having on the Chinese culture. They liked it static. And so they turned inward, they burned the ships and they sealed themselves off for a couple hundred years, which worked great until England showed up with now the massed power of the world behind them and decided that they were going to impose their will. Um, China has learned the lesson from that. So they have a replica of one of those treasure ships that says something along the lines of either never again, or we will not forget whatever that is basically saying, we know what it's like to not expand and be able to exploit the resources around us and to gain that leverage that we get. And so we're not, we're not gonna do that. We're, we're not gonna fold inward again. We are definitely looking outward and space is one of those areas. Um, and that brings me to the strategy. So the visions, they have very different visions of themselves. The Chinese from 1949 through every single leader since have always talked about national rejuvenation, that China will take its preeminent place in the world which means it will be it will be first among equals. However, whatever language it wants to be the hegemon based on that language, it wants to be the superior nation. In space, what is their well? So what? Back to the United States. In space, what is the American strategy in space? I'll be honest, I couldn't really tell you because I don't know exactly what our strategy is at the moment. It it if I am going to look at all the various organizations that are involved in it, we want to do something with commerce. We want to go back to the moon with Artemis and send a woman. And we want to do this military thing with the Space Force. Great. And we have SpaceX doing their own thing, Blue Origin doing their own thing. We have a pretty discordant, in my estimation, a pretty discordant strategy and a, a discordant strategy on space because we have different visions of what we want to do with space. Um, China, I'm assuming, also has some amount of this just because different people will have different visions and different strategies a little bit, but they are more united in their goals. In particular, they are looking at building with Russia, the International Lunar Research Station, ILRS. Uh, originally, this was a Chinese plan, and then the Russians have come alongside to assist them with it. But don't, but don't mistake, Russia is the, the, is the hot news topic right now because of Ukraine, but China is our true strategic threat. Russia has an economy the size of Texas. 
there's lots of commentators. Obviously, there's lots of dust, too. So it's hard to get an assessment for what's going on in Ukraine. The Russian military does not necessarily look like it's um, performing as was expected as the number two military power in the world um, because their economy is the size of Texas. And you have you have to cut certain amounts of training or or maintenance or all sorts of things. The logistics are not particularly impressive. And so all of this is, is, is relevant to Russia as a threat, even though they're the main topic of discussion now. China is much more patient and it has a much longer view plan. They have a plan that's already basically scheduled out to 2049. And the next big one is they're gonna set up their moon base. It was supposed to be 2035. In December, December 29th of last year, they announced it would be now 2027. And so they accelerated it by several years, over half a over half a decade. Um, why is the moon and and that's their that's their next step? And then continued uh, satellites and space based solar power, considering uh, continued use of the Baidu, which is their uh, or Baidu, which is their um, GPS equivalent, um, and that relates to the future, which is the, uh, rather the tactics, which goes to the fact that they leverage, basically they have economic, um, they do have some uh, businesses, uh, space businesses, but we dwarf them in that size, but it's just hard to, and this is where I think that the, the American uh, space community, especially the government can really leverage the, the incredible depth of space businesses that we have to accelerate our Space, uh, space, our moon base founding, because we're not scheduled to go back to the moon until 2026. I just saw right. it was it slipped to 25. Now it's as of I think just this week it's 2026. Yeah, there was a GAO uh, report. Yeah, yeah, that's not good. The Chinese and Russians are supposed to have their base set up in 2027. Um, this is concerning for a number of reasons, um, but why is a space base? Why is a moon base important? I I, I can't remember if we were going to talk about that. Um, specifically later. We are now. Yeah, I'll talk about it now. Why not? So, so why is a a Chinese moon base important? Because it flows naturally. If I'm if I'm you know doing my best impression of a 400 pound gorilla and slamming on my desk saying the Chinese are are not this is not good that the Chinese will have a moon base. I'm sure the question comes up. Well, why is that a bad thing? After all, that's the moon. They can do what they want. Well, there's a bunch of stuff that's a problem with that. Um, and honestly, there's so many things to the problem with it, I barely know where to start. However, I'll start first with their behavior in the South China Sea. Right now, under the Outer Space Treaty, which is an international treaty, China, no nation can claim national sovereignty of the moon right. uh, or any other celestial body. Um, also, by international treaty, you're not supposed to have people uh, taking islands, which the Chinese did in the South China Sea. They took the Hongyang Island or uh, the Scarborough Shoals, as the Philippines call it from the Philippines in 2014. Uh, and the Philippines brought that to the International Court of Arbitration and it, the International Court found in the Philippines favor. And then China said, well, that's nice. That doesn't apply to us because our legal experts said that it has no, it has no binding power. So we're just gonna keep on going. Likewise, I would point out that this is a Russian and Chinese space base, right. moon base. Um, based on the fact that we have a, a aggressive Russia who just, decided to invade a nearby sovereign nation. Um, I don't know if I want them on the moon with China and no one else, because remember, there, no one else is going to be on the moon at that point, at least from a basing perspective. We'll still have 
um, exploration going on, but most likely we will not have expansion by that point. And so China and Russia could claim whatever locations they want, set up bases, and there's really no way to get them out without engaging in some sort of conflict on the moon, which no one wants, uh, and which would be incredibly difficult. We're talking with Josh. Let me just do this real quick. We're talking with Josh Carlson, author of the new book, Space Power Ascendant, Space Development Theory and a New Space Strategy. Take a moment right now and click on subscribe to make sure you don't miss an episode of the podcast or if you're watching on YouTube, any of the videos from Xterra, the Journal of Space Commerce. Let's go back to this moon base, Josh, and talk about that a little bit more because it's, it with this the developments that are going on in Ukraine, the partnership, if you'll call it that, between Russia and China seems to be strained at best. Um, President Xi saying, you know, apparently they're not going to go along with sanctions, and yet you guys go take care of that over there because we don't want to get involved. How strong is that is that alliance to build a moon base between those two countries? And are they technologically capable of doing it by 2028? It's an it's a very accelerated. So so first of all, do I know if they are technologically capable? I mean, the, it's really really hard to get insight into their specific technical capabilities. I based on the fact that they already were scheduled for 2035, and they are willing to accelerate it to 2027. Now they might very well get to 2027 and they end up slipping. So. I don't know. I don't know if they're going to be able to make 2027. That's pretty That's pretty aggressive, quite honestly, although they do have several missions going in the next couple of years. And so part of the bellwether assessment will be if those missions go successfully and are successful, then yeah, maybe they will be able to make that timeline. As far as how strong is that alliance, in my estimation, if there was no United States, they wouldn't even be talking to each other. They would most likely actually be in their own shooting war. Um, Russia and China don't go well together, and Russia has to understand that in a lot of ways it has made a deal with the devil in trying to leverage economic capability. The Chinese nation will destroy Russia long before China uh, gives up on Russia, if that makes sense. Now, and, and pointing out, I mean, Russia, in a lot of ways, I, I mean... It, I hate going back to World War II examples because they are unfortunately so overdone. However, it is interesting to me that in World War II, you had two nations that, uh, three technically with Italy, although we don't often talk about them, but mm -hmm. with Germany and Japan, you had two nations in opposite sides of the world that both had aggressive intentions and were able to find common ground on the fact they had aggressive intentions. And thankfully they never actually came into contact with each other. For instance, if Germany and Japan had somehow managed to wipe out Russia, I, I mean, if there was still the United States and England and everything to deal with, they probably wouldn't have engaged in hostilities. But I mean, both of them were aggressive, militaristic, nationalistic, xenophobic uh, groups. They were not going to they were not going to coexist very well um, in the long run. And I think Russia and China, in a lot of ways, are, are fairly similar. But both of them have this mutually supporting desires. Obviously, Russia has wanted to take Ukraine. We talk about the Ukrainian invasion. It's not really accurate because Russia already invaded Ukraine back in 2014. I mean, they've been engaged in military hostilities just covertly since then. How, and China has made no, uh, no hot, um, has, not, has not hidden 
its intentions at all of taking Taiwan. As a matter of fact, during this whole Ukraine situation, China said, yeah, I mean, we don't condone that, but we just want to be very clear. Taiwan, Taiwan is not in the same situation because Taiwan has always been part of China. Right. Which is, I mean, this whole war kicked off because Putin said, we recognize the independence of these areas in Ukraine. China just said, that whole country is ours. Think about that for just a moment. So, and by the way, they're actively attempting to knock anyone because things are in the international community are only true if you believe them. Is Taiwan a nation? Well, if enough nations around the world believe it, then yes, it will be true. If, however, there was, I mean, you could have a, I think it was a Simpsons episode. Homer Simpson decided to declare his house an independent nation. Mm. Well, you can do that. But if no other nation in the world recognizes you, then you don't really have a nation and whatever local nation will just say, well, that's ours again. Um, Likewise with Taiwan and China is actively targeting nations that believe that Taiwan should be independent and and, uh, wooing them through bribes, uh, economic capability, whatever, to to end up recognizing the CCP in China, uh, the People's Republic of China, as the the true China as opposed to Taiwan. Um, And... So, I mean, China is clearly positioning itself to take Taiwan in, in the near future. Estimates I've heard anywhere between this April and, uh, and next April, basically, are the windows I'm hearing. I think they'll definitely try before 2030 um, and potentially, potentially way earlier than that, depending on how the international community responds. So are the U.S. and Western governments prepared and are they capable of countering China? Or when it comes to to space capabilities, at least, or are they just are we just going to debate it to death? So the question is, are we capable of deterring China in space? I think the question. I think that's basically the question. Right. The the question then, if if you're going to deter an adversary, the question has to be, what are you deterring them from? Are you deterring China? I think that the United States is largely capable of deterring China from an open engagement in space, Chinese missiles shooting at American satellites, for instance. I'm, I'm pretty sure that they wouldn't do something that quite that stupid yet. Um, but the, the problem is that we have this, I, I wouldn't say it's anachronistic, but I would argue that it is maybe not as helpful as it was at the very least that we focus only on open war deterrence would be maybe how I would say it. And we can deter them from openly shooting at us. Doesn't deter them from necessarily putting satellites too close to ours and maybe forcing ours to move or uh, overpopulating an orbit or having lawfare to try to stop us from um, maintaining weapon capabilities that we could even use to deter them in space, for instance. Uh, I think China and Russia learned that there is a whole spectrum of warfare or, or shaping operations before open warfare that you have to engage in if you're to have, and you, you have to have the national will for if you're to be a successful world power. And I think that unfortunately, 20 years of open uh, insurgent conflict for the United States, I, I don't know how much of a of an appetite we have for open conflict um, with with other nations, particularly like Russia or China, because if there was if it was 
if it was genuinely something they felt was in the way of their national survival or their national resurgence. Um, and Russia has already declared that if their national integrity is threatened, which is interesting because if I remember correctly, he, he accepted the, inter, the um, independent states and basically made them part of Russia. So let's just mm -hmm. say that Ukraine somehow gets a ton of weapons, even NATO goes in as peacekeepers or whatever. And let's say they infringe on those areas that Russia has declared that are now part of Russia. Does that provoke a, nu a tactical nuclear exchange from Russia? Because based on their doctrine, their national sovereignty has been violated. That is now grounds for nuclear engagement. Um, the question is, it's, it's a very difficult game of brinksmanship if you play it that way. If it's a tit for tat and we're just responding, you get into a very dangerous brinksmanship game, which is why, going back to the moon base, I think it's absolutely essential that we have more capability positioned earlier than the Chinese so that they have to play a brinksman game with us. We don't have to play one with them. We already have the positions we want. And we already have it in the with the capabilities to defend ourselves if we need to, because otherwise it'll be the other way around. And now he, we look like the aggressor if we're going to engage in brinksmanship with them. That makes sense. If it's a, an Elon Musk, if it's a if it's a SpaceX that gets to the moon and establishes some kind of a permanent presence there before the United States government, does that change the dynamic? It does. Unfortunately, it weakens our position, I think. <clears throat> So under the Outer Space Treaty, any, any group, organization, or company launching from a country, wherever that country launch came from, it technically belongs to that country. That country is responsible for those, uh, making sure that that does not interfere with uh, other, other nations' space capabilities. So another, that's why China got upset with um, SpaceX when they launched um, I believe it was um, Starlink satellites. Mm -hmm. they, they, they had some concerns about that. And Russia, China recently tried some other lawfare. There was apparently a rocket, a, a, allegedly a SpaceX rocket that was going to crash into the moon and China was, you know, pounding on the desk and they were very upset. And then I saw some stories, supposedly it wasn't a SpaceX rocket because they don't, you know, not, we don't have a lot of telescopes that can necessarily see out, you know, read the logo off the thing. <laughs> But so let's say SpaceX gets a moon base first. Um, <clears throat> you have a couple of problems with that. First of all, China, if China, let's just say that the moon base, to make it economically viable, there's an ice vein nearby. And so the SpaceX moon base is going over, they've got their rovers, they're going over the, the ice vein and uh, all of that. Well, let's say one morning they roll out and they go there and now there's three Chinese rovers and there's a Chinese moon base now on the other side of it, even worse. And it's in closer proximity than the, Spar the SpaceX moon base. And China says, no, this is ours now. You can't have it. Um, and if you, if you attempt to use this ice vein, we will consider that an aggressive action and we will remove you from this area. So, I mean, SpaceX can't fight the entire yeah. Chinese nation. And not to mention, if they do, China can embark, can um, uh, impose economic sanctions and all sorts of stuff on SpaceX too to put additional pain on it. At the end of the day, SpaceX has a vision, and I think they're one of the best companies in the world for space uh, space activities because they have such a good vision and because they have pre-positioned themselves with this vision to be economically dominant. 
However, they are not going to be able to compete with an entire nation, two nations, because Russia will probably be there too. Right. Um, and now we also have an awkward situation if it's rovers, unmanned rovers, and let's just say we have military capabilities in the vicinity of the moon. Are we going to step in and engage another nation's space assets and potentially destroy them or degrade them to stop them from degrading a un, an uncrewed space capability from one of our economic, um, from one of the, our U.S. companies? That gets really, really sticky. And Let's go we, back to are we willing to engage that I, I don't know. Yeah. I don't, I, we've never had to. So I don't know if the answer is yes or no, honestly. Let's go back to the situation in Ukraine for just a moment. Um, do you feel like there are going to be consequences for space commerce based on what's going on in Ukraine right now? And I know it's still very early. We don't know what the outcome is going to be, but kind of what do you what do you see unfolding in a couple of different scenarios? Um, okay, so current state, I think it has had impacts, but I think it strengthened it because we have, for instance, Elon Musk giving um, Starlink, uh, giving, selling, I'm not, I'm not entirely clear of the relationship there, but Starlink um, downlink pieces showing up in Ukraine because the so Russia turned out the internet for Ukraine, basically, ground-based internet. And so Elon Musk said, well, here you go. And Starlink is overhead. And so now you can get internet with, with those downlink um, hardware. You can get internet anywhere in Ukraine. Uh, so I'm assuming, I, I haven't done a test, obviously. I haven't gone over there. But I mean, you can go do that anywhere, which demonstrates the incredible capabilities of the new Starlink system that, that Elon Musk is, is still in the process of establishing. And similar things to that. <clears throat> And if you have emergency resources, obviously the, the, the land links are still very much uh, in, or at least they're moderately functioning. And so being able to bring in supplies and uh, things like that to the Ukrainians are important. But if you needed to get something there quick, you could, in theory, spy a, a starship over and just land it very quickly and then uh, fly back out again. If you had to get something there, absolutely, like right now. Right. Um, how, how does this go in the long term? Well, I'm sorry. And then one other thing that was interesting is Russia. They were having a, Russia is not going to get their satellites launched. Russia is not going to launch other people's satellites. And so um, there's a divergence right now. And then there's the SWIFT, uh, the, bank, the SWIFT banking system. And I think that unfortunately there's a divergence between uh, the Russian Chinese um, block and largely the rest of the world, particularly the European and American bloc, um, Ang the Anglophones as well, obviously not just Europe and the US, but um, as, as that diverges, unfortunately, a lot of our soft power leverage goes away because we don't now have that, that economic, as much economic leverage. And so there's less economic reason to not engage in conflict. And so I think unfortunately, as I see it now, if I had to make a guess, I would say we're probably going to be engaging in more conflict, unfortunately, in the coming years, uh, because we have a divergence in our in our world economic system. It's not one economic system. It's it's really two with China and the U.S. pulling in opposite directions and various nations aligning with one or the other. And that doesn't even begin to take into account the fact that so much of the imagery that we're seeing is commercial satellite imagery, and uh, nobody has anywhere to hide anymore. 
Yes, that's that's a great point. That's another great example of of uh, space space commer commercial capabilities coming into their own. I would argue, basically, for the first time. I mean, there's a lot of interesting. I mean, so obviously, the war itself is horrible. To I, I feel I have to give that disclaimer, but it really is fascinating watching the first truly modern um, LISCO large scale combat operations is the, the term. The first, the first real modern LISCO of, of two modern nations actually engaging with each other. The last major one I would argue we saw that at least in recent memory was 2003 with the invasion, the American uh, invasion of uh, Iraq. Mm. But there's been a lot of change since then. I mean, I think the space obviously and the internet and all of these things um, speed information at, at an incredible, incredible rates. And for the first time, we are able to have the world watch an invasion in real time from multiple different perspectives, including space overhead imagery. And you also, I mean, you have, you can pull up, I mean, I could pull up videos right now from all over Ukraine with, with bombings going off and strafing runs and, and all sorts of things. And you never had this level of access even 10 years ago, you, you wouldn't have been able to have the same level of access. And so I think that that has really changed uh, the scope of warfare uh, and the, the importance of information warfare. Both Russia and China have noted that information operations is actually almost more important than, actually, I think they actually have said maybe even more important than traditional military capabilities, armor, tanks, aircraft, that sort of thing. It, it's actually more important to get a good message out than than necessarily to be highly successful on the battlefield helps when you can do both but uh definitely if you're going to pick one it actually is almost more important uh if for example see the uh tet offensive that the vietnamese put together um anyway we're di we're diverging slightly but <laughs> to in the current scenario um so back to that so current scenario space definitely has benefited and space has demonstrated a lot of capabilities commercially that before this were largely um were largely unexplored. Although I would point out that the South China Sea Islands that China established and then promised Obama that they would not weaponize, of course, it was commercial satellites that ended up finding all the weapons on them, proving they had been in fact weaponized. And so, I mean, this has been this has been uh, actually ongoing for a while, but most people really didn't pay attention to that. But this one, they've they've got that. So, where does this go from here? I mean. It doesn't look to me if, if I, and so this is, this is more amateurish than my, my space hat. I'll put my, my amateur arm, armchair general hat on. It, uh, I'll be honest, it doesn't look particularly good for Ukraine. If I had to guess, they probably got about between a week to two weeks, depending on how this, how this goes exactly. The urban centers are going to be huge conflict zones. The, the Russians have not demonstrated uh, a particularly a, a particular high level of skill in dealing with those urban zones. And so they will most likely take pretty extreme losses because of that. And because of the Russian reliance on field artillery, unfortunately, I think you're going to see a lot of field artillery and air bombardment of those major metropolitan zones. And you're seeing a population that desires at least partially to resist the invaders overtly as, I mean, you have pictures all over Ukraine of various people with rifles and all this sort of thing. So 
The problem is I think you're going to see a lot of damage in the next two weeks, probably, as uh, Kiev and uh, Krakow and all these other, um, or Kharkov, all of these cities are going to be engaged uh, by the Russians, and the Russians don't have the same uh, attempts to avoid civilian casualties via indirect fires that the Americans, uh, we have um, perfected over 20 years of insurgent warfare. Josh, we could talk about this for probably another hour or so, but we're out of time, unfortunately. Oh my gosh, already. <laughs> time flies, I guess. But thank you so much for your insights. It's been really fascinating and uh, we'll hopefully we'll be able to talk about it again sometime uh, under better circumstances. Certainly, I, I would love to come back. We barely scratched the surface of the moon base. Suffice it to say, the reason that's important is as the space economy develops, having a permanent placement on the moon and the ability to refuel your satellites from moon ice could be hugely valuable. And then that's not even looking beyond that, out to the moon, out to, or I'm sorry, out to Mars, out to the asteroid belt. Um, that's, that's just an immediate term, but that's so beneficial. Well, we'll certainly have you back on and discuss some of those, um, some of those issues, but, and I look forward to that. Sounds great. Thank you very much for having me. Josh Carlson is the author of Space Power Ascendant, Space Development Theory and a New Space Strategy. That's going to do it for this edition of the Xterra podcast. Check out our YouTube channel. Be sure to click on subscribe so you can stay up to date on developments in space commerce and be notified when we post new videos. You can also get daily space commerce news at xterrajsc.com. And one thing more, be sure to connect with us on LinkedIn and follow us on Twitter at XterraJSC. Until next time, I'm Tom Patton. Thanks for joining us.